Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Linda Maxwell, a seasoned and practicing head and neck surgeon and the founder and executive director of the Biomedical Zone, Canada's first and only hospital-embedded physician-led med tech incubator. Dr. Maxwell is a published scientific author, a medical educator, and a frequent public speaker. She's a noted healthcare innovation expert and has served the City of Toronto, the Province of Ontario, the Canadian Space Agency, and the Canadian Federal Government. She has been named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women by the Women's Executive Network, recognized as one of the top 30 women making a difference in tech, and distinguished as one of the top 100 accomplished black women in Canada. She's the recipient of the Chris Conrad Award for Excellence in Facial Plastic Surgery and the Hayes Prize in Operations Management. In terms of corporate governance, she's a certified independent corporate director and serves on several public, private and non-profit boards, including Profound Medical, which is publicly listed in the Toronto Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, Gardner Museum and the Public Health Agency of Canada. If you'd like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. You can also subscribe to the Boardroom Governance Newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Hello, Linda. How are you doing? I am very happy to have you in my podcast uh, to talk about governance, but also you're the first person who is a biotech expert. So I'm very happy to go into this direction. And uh, if you know the structure of this podcast, it's typically first we go into your personal background, your origin story, your professional background, then we go into corporate governance and we end up with rapid fire questions. So the first thing uh, I want to ask you is you come from a very small town called Beresford, New Brunswick. Why don't you tell us about that? I would be happy to. And and thanks very much, Evan, for having me on this podcast. It's really a delight to uh, get to share a bit of my story and thoughts on governance. So you're absolutely right. I'm from a little tiny mining and fishing village in northern New Brunswick, Canada, called Beresford, New Brunswick. It's French Canadian mainly. And uh, when I was growing up as a town of a village of about 3000 people. And uh, for you know, listeners who can't see it, um, I'm, I'm mixed race. So my father uh, originated from Sub-Saharan Africa, Ghana, uh, in West Africa. And my mother is was from uh, northern New Brunswick. And so I'm a multiracial person. And as you can imagine, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I'm dating myself, uh, we were an anomaly, to uh-huh. say the least. How did they meet? Uh, so they met, my father was a family doctor and he was training, uh, actually practicing in Montreal. And my mother was a nurse who had just uh, relocated to Montreal after her training. So they met in the hospital on the wards mm-hmm. and uh, they had their first date on New Year's Eve back in the 60s and got married and uh, absconded off to West Africa. They were planning on living in Ghana for the rest wow. of their lives. And then a coup happened in the late 60s, uh, which forced a lot of uh, intellectuals uh, and the middle class out of Ghana. And that's all changed now. But uh, that was a dream initially, but they settled in Canada. So you went from the sun to the cold. <laughs> yes, Extreme. very cold, very cold. <laughs> okay. And and I also noticed that you have uh, four other sisters. You all ended up at Harvard. Is yeah. that a record? Like five <laughs> sisters at, in, at Harvard? I think it is some kind of a record. It's um, has to be. 
Uh, yeah, it is actually four. So we, um, I have four sisters, one older, three younger. We all went to Harvard undergrad. My older sister actually stayed on for Harvard Med uh, and the HST, which is a Harvard MIT program. And there was an 18 year stretch where there was always a Maxwell sister at Harvard University to the point where my mother uh, received like handwritten notes from Neil Rudenstein and some of the um, presidents of Harvard while we were there because it was so unusual. And when my final sister, my last sister graduated in 2006, the Harvard Gazette, the, the publication did um, a a beautiful story on us. We were on the cover of the Globe and Mail here in Canada uh, because it was a record it, uh, for the you know highest number of sisters in one family. Certainly, you know, mixed race from Canada. There's a lot of uh, one-offs there, and so we were um, we were featured in, in a very generous and very nice way across a lot of publications. But you know, at the time, you don't really think about it because you're just focused on getting your college career and you know getting onto your professional track but you know when you look back when I look back at it now it's it's unusual coming out of that kind of a I went to a big public high school I'd never heard of AP advanced mm -hmm. placement right. I had no idea you know I took the SATs the SATs mm -hmm. just like studying on my own and you know um so it was a brand new world when I landed in Cambridge Massachusetts my well, that's uh, incredible yeah. And then you have like a trifecta. You you have the your BA from Harvard, your <laughs> MD from Yale, and your MBA from Oxford. Is, yeah. is that on purpose? You want to have those three big names? <laughs> no, not at all. So, I mean, I never, I think like most of my sisters, we, we never intended to, you know, end up at Harvard or any of these other schools. But, you, you know, from Harvard, I applied to a bunch of medical schools, actually. And uh, I was accepted at several, but the financial aid offering at Yale, which was a full academic scholarship for four years, thank you Yale, and thank you the donors, uh, made it possible for me to go. It actually, I had been accepted, and then my father passed away, and we didn't actually have enough financial resources to, to attend, uh, for me to attend medical school. So it was uh, by the grace of good fortune and very generous uh, people at, in the Yale community who created this, or put together a four-year scholarship for my medical degree. And then, I, you know, I finished medical school, um, came back to Canada, uh, where I did my six years of residency and fellowship in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, so ENT, ear, nose and throat, and did a subspecialization of facial plastic uh, reconstructive surgery, uh, and then went into practice. And I thought that was going to be the end of the story. I just practiced for 40 years. And, you know, because everything had been moving in lockstep, you know, you do one thing, then the next thing happens, and then you go on uh, but, you know, once you go into practice, I realized that part of what I really love is learning and having and I started to realize that I wanted more stimulation and that there was actually a lot of other ways to contribute to medicine and healthcare beyond uh, practicing. Practicing is like a fundamental, but I was starting to understand that there were other uh, avenues that I could add. Uh, that I could be active in. And so basically on a whim, I decided to get an MBA, mainly because there's no business in my family. No one's an entrepreneur. No, it's medicine and law, you know, first generation syndrome, like all the children go into medicine law or maybe engineering. Um, so there was no business, but I had always been curious about it. And it was like this big black box that I had no knowledge of. 
so I, and I was running my practice at the time and I was doing a cosmetic surgery practice and I thought the business acumen could be useful. Mm-hmm. So on a whim, I applied to many different business schools and got in at Oxford uh, on the advice of an advisor. I applied there, got in, went there. I had never seen the campus until the day I started school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I spent the most magical year at Oxford earning my MBA. Uh, and that's sort of what opened the door to a lot of the work I do now. Otherwise, I would still be in a solo practice, uh, you know, however many hours a week seeing patients. And and after you finished that MBA, I noticed you went, uh, you spent a year or more in tech transfer. And yeah. so tell us more about that experience. <laughs> <laughs> Again, completely random. Uh, and I think for a lot of doctors... You know, it's hard sometimes to switch for the light to switch on to um, see opportunities and to maybe be a little bit adventurous in terms of what you do with your career. You know, medicine and law have, you'll know this from from law even, there's a a pretty uh, predictable path. Stay on that path and structure. Uh, and I was, you know, that that was certainly my my understanding and belief. But for some reason, some light went off or some switch was turned on for me. And so then after the MBA and I'd been exposed to this entirely new world of business and all these people from all over the world in different industries, nothing to do with science in some cases, nothing to do with healthcare. I found it quite intriguing. You know, it turns out Oxford has an amazing life sciences um, uh, commercialization tech transfer, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, London, that triangle. Uh, there's amazing things coming out of there around COVID, as you, you've probably heard about. And so, you know, I got very intrigued with what was going on in the NHS and in the labs of the, the clinician scientists around Oxford. And again, by good fortune, was able to find my way into Oxford University innovation. I have no idea what tech transfer was. I, I thought it sounded interesting because like the idea of creating companies and like startups was just like, I didn't know much about it, but I thought that sounds interesting. And so on a whim, I decided when I was offered a sabbatical to come and work with Oxford University Innovation and help clinicians, doctors, spin out companies and, and you know, develop their pipeline, I thought, well, why not? Because I was already in practice and I kind of accomplished all the things I wanted to do. So I, you know, and had been on like a laser focused course for so long. I thought, you know, let me take a year and, and try this. And uh, the world changed for me. I was totally into, into it. I mean, it was great to be back in Oxford, first of all, but learning about tech transfer, research commercialization, you know, developing grants, IP strategy, reading patents, understanding them, how, understanding how they fit in the landscape, you know, commercial. So I ran a portfolio of tech transfer, mm-hmm. life sciences uh, research, and understanding the commercialization process, whether it's out licensing or in some cases spinning out companies, which is you know not the majority of uh, cases for tech transfer. And then you know the early stage capital raising that's associated with it. Oxford has an excellent system where they infuse capital in their spin out companies, and they have a management system on the back end of the companies to ensure that, you know, their investments continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Many universities, you know, help companies spin out, but then there's not a lot of follow on after that. And I think that's part of the success of the Oxford uh, community when it comes to life sciences startups. So I, like, I got very, very interested in uh, through that work. And I ended up managing an angel investment network um, with the Harvard Business School Alumni Angels of London, a very active angel network. I knew nothing about angel investing until I joined that network because I was bringing in life sciences deals for them. 
And then before I knew it, I was sort of, you know, right. doing diligence on all kinds of um, all kinds of businesses. And you also had an experience earlier on with Medtronic and and doing some of their uh, work. And tell us about that. And uh, I see you 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 spent some time in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So I did. I did. Uh, you, you obviously have some entrepreneurial bug in you. Oh yeah, I do. I didn't. I again, I didn't know it until you know much later in my career after the MBA, but. Um, while I was finishing the MBA, I was looking for, you know, I just assumed I was going to go back into full-time practice and that was going to be the end of the story after the MBA. I was going to use that MBA to manage my practice and very straightforward. But I noticed all my colleagues were thinking about like post-MBA positions and internships and, and working in different kinds of jobs. And so just through network effect, um, and I knew Medtronic from my medical practice with the various devices we use and navigation and so on. So I was able to uh, connect with people at Medtronic, and they offered me some different projects. One was in India, and one was in uh, South America. And I chose the South America one for very silly reasons, the like same time zone or like similar mm-hmm. time zone as Toronto, so it would be a little easier to manage than you know flying uh, to Asia. Uh, although I would have loved that opportunity. And then the, the Brazil project, which was to help them develop a growth strategy for Brazil, which is like the third largest uh, healthcare market in the world, um, in a particular business subunit involved with like surgical, it's called advanced surgical technologies. Um, and so they offered me that uh, position to help with business development. And I thought it was a great opportunity to understand a different healthcare system. You know, I knew Canada, I knew US, I knew UK, and now to have exposure to the South American system, Brazilian system would be great. And then I would also be able to do business development, which I'd never done in my life, do some primary qualitative research, some environmental scanning of the healthcare market in Brazil, understand how it works and the importance, especially with respect to Medtronic around distribution, like the distribution model is very, very important. Uh, so I just I learned a lot in that in that um, period of time and produced, uh, you know, some recommendations for the senior leadership team. Uh, and then I ended up continuing on with Medtronic on some of their uh, their clinical trials as an external monitor, medical monitor for phase four, like post market surveillance. So I've had a few different experiences with Medtronic and they've all been amazing. Okay. And, and, you know, if we fast forward a little bit in, in 2015, you created the biomedical zone uh, with Ryerson University and it's an incubator. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so on the heels of my um, year in Oxford doing the tech transfer, uh, which was a one year sabbatical, I came back and uh, was just ready to go back into full clinical practice again. But I happened to make a, a, a visit, a social call, really, to one of the vice presidents at the local hospital. It's a big hospital in downtown Toronto. And they were just on the cusp of getting an innovation hub going in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But there was really no plan. There was no architecture. for like, It was just all kind of an idea. And so I met with several people and talked about my work in Oxford, you know, spinning out companies and running tech transfer and working with startups and angel investing. And, you know, in short order, they recruited me to build some kind of an innovation center, which would be a partnership between uh, this hospital, uh, St. Michael's Hospital, and then Ryerson University, which is an urban, um, it's a downtown, it's a university in downtown Toronto, four-year degree granting uh, university and research institute, really strong in engineering. 
And so I, you know, again, it was very serendipitous. It was just because I was, you know, having a chat with someone that this opportunity arose. And uh, I decided, just like Oxford, to take it and run with it. Like, why not? And mm-hmm. I could still practice uh, in parallel with that. So I, I thought it would be a great thing to try because it hadn't been done before. A hospital embedded mm-hmm. incubator is like, it doesn't exist in Canada. And uh, so I ended up uh, designing and architecting and operationalizing the biomedical zone, which is a med tech, so device, digital, uh, machine learning, AI oriented, engineering focused um, med tech technology, uh, medical technology. And it's embedded in the hospital, which allows this really nice confluence of entrepreneurs, scientists, clinicians, key decision makers, patients in some cases to all be in the same location. And so you end up getting cross-pollination and collaborations that you wouldn't normally, or that you'd have to spend a lot of energy to try and create. It happens much more organically. It's also a great outlet for the hospital and for clinicians to have this innovation hub inside the hospital where they can run ideas uh, with, you know, like-minded people. They can get, you know, high-level advice on things like patenting, on commercialization on talking to investors this is not something you're you're taught in med school or in residency and truly the foundation of good biotech is good science and uh you know having strong clinical credibility having data so you need that interaction with clinicians and scientists i think it can't just be you know it has to be a balanced approach to building good biotech companies strong business acumen but you also have to have strong clinical and strong science and by bringing them together in the same place, it facilitates some of that early work. So the biomedical zone sprung out of an idea around creating, um, you know, this safe environment to ideate and create companies where you get a good mix of clinical and business at the same time. So how many companies are there in the portfolio and, you know, how much money have they raised or how many exits and, and yeah. how do you measure kind of like the evolution of the, of the zone? Yes. Uh, so, you know, we, um, there's actually a really nice, robust network of incubators and accelerators in the Toronto area mm-hmm. <clears throat> that across different disciplines. And so we use a lot of the same metrics that mm-hmm. most incubators and accelerators would use to measure the success with a few exceptions. So uh, up to date, uh, like up to now, I think we would have incubated 45, 50 uh, companies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think I've been personally involved with every one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've now been able to develop a nice roster of clinicians and residents and entrepreneurs and residents who also enrich the advice and the guidance that we're able to supply the startups. And uh, we've helped them raise uh, upwards of $45 million in private investment and around uh, $4 million in, in non-dilutive funding. So grants, uh, mm-hmm. some big grants and some mm-hmm. smaller grants. Because uh, that's really how a lot of these early companies are able to stay afloat is through grants and competitions and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think personally, I've probably mentored and coached 75 to 100 CEOs and founders through those companies. So I'm a very, I have a very hands-on approach. I mean, it had to be that way in the beginning when there was like one person working there and it was me. <laughs> but now yeah. we've been able to expand out the team uh, to a few more people. We, you know, we work within the... Um, the budgetary uh, confines of a university and a hospital. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, it's all pretty frugally mm-hmm. uh, managed, pretty mm-hmm. lean. 
Um, but it forces you to do as much as you can uh, with little. And I think it forces you to be very creative and resourceful. And we've been very lucky in that way. Some of the metrics that we use, obviously, we look at things like fundraising, number of companies we've spun out, exits. I think we've had now three to four exits. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we're waiting for that IPO. That will be great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these yeah. started as very, very small companies. So the, the yeah. path to IPO takes a lot longer. I also, uh, the Biomedical Zone keeps track of the number of patients we've impacted. I think that's very important. You know, we, we don't have the resources to track all of the clinical parameters like hospital readmissions avoided and, you know, surgical infections redu- redu- uh, reduced. Mm-hmm. But we're, we are able to track, and I've uh, been very diligent about our companies tracking it, not only for our own metrics, but for their metrics mm-hmm. about the patient impact. So we've now been able to impact over 65,000 patients with the technology coming out of this little uh, incubator in the middle of the hospital, which I think is maybe one of the most important uh, indicators alongside fundraising and alongside right. jobs created. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I think we're very business focused. We want these companies to spin out and 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 grow and generate revenue and have strong IP, uh, you know, behind them. But at the same time, as a clinician, it's very important for these companies to always have the patient, you know, patient-centered uh, therapy or solution to have the patient at the center of it to think carefully about how they are going to have to. Uh, fit into the system or uh, disrupt the workflow, what is going to be entailed in that because there are serious consequences consequences mm-hmm. to putting new technology in place or putting innovation in place. Oftentimes it helps, but many times it uh, there's a lot of growing pains around it and it's unfamiliar. And, you know, in medicine, we uh, have a tendency to want to do things because we've always done them that way. And there's good reason for that, but there's also a lot of need for innovation. And so that balance mm-hmm. um, is really important. And, and so we focus heavily on the patient centeredness and on how do you integrate into the system to make this technology actually workable. You know, that's that's very important. And particularly, I suppose, from uh, the biotech side, which which has that distinction, which is, you know, healthcare, yeah. as opposed to just spinning out software or other for-profit entities. So let's talk about boards. So you started serving on nonprofit boards, and I, I suppose you've served on startup boards within yeah. your ecosystem. And now you serve on a public company board. So what can you tell us in terms of differences on each? And, and how did you start with nonprofits? And how do you think about board service? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really evolved over time. Uh, I think many people, especially in healthcare, especially physicians will get their start on nonprofit boards. And, you know, some of them will migrate onto like for-profit and public boards, but you see it less and less. I always feel like a little bit of an anomaly mm-hmm. when it comes to being on some, you know, public boards. Very happy to be there. You don't see a lot of like you know, especially in Canada, physicians on these boards. Uh, the nonprofit boards uh, are are just really amazing and really fun. And you get people, you get other board directors who are there because they really care. It's not that I think any board director who's going to be um, active cares about what they're doing. But you know, when you're on the board. So I've been on Medical Alert Foundation of Canada, which is the bracelet you wear that uh, if you get into an emergency, the paramedics can look at the information on mm. your bracelet and get yeah. access to your uh, your important health information right away. So there's a branch, there's a foundation in Canada for it, just like there is in the U.S. And like people who are on that board 
they either have children who wear the bracelet, they wear the bracelet, they understand the important healthcare need, they want society be, to be better. Uh, you know, they, they care about the vulnerable who can't speak for themselves in the case of an emergency. So it's people who really, really want to be there. You're not paid for these boards and there's a lot of work if you're doing it correctly. Uh, so you find a, just a, like a, a passion for the topic and for the subject area that I think is, is pretty special. And I found that on the board that I did around youth economic empowerment for racialized people. It's the Center for Young Black Professionals. These are people who are the furthest from the job market. They tend to be black. And many of them have had uh, you know, interactions with the criminal justice system, uh, very difficult to get jobs. So we focused on you know, increasing their job, uh, their employability by placements and job programs. And one of the things I oversaw was the digital literacy program, which was just coming into being. Uh, again, like you have to be really passionate to, to be, it's a lot of work to get that. That one was a startup board. So I was one of the first three founding board members. So writing bylaws, you know, getting stuff cleared with CRA to get it uh, uh, declared a charity as opposed to just a nonprofit. There's different tax implications. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and again, like getting engagement and, and getting people, co- companies to want to work with you to create placements for, you know, kids on the margin who like, you know, most companies don't employ them. It's like a lot of work. It's a a labor of passion. And I I really firmly believe in that one. So that was a great board. And then I'm on, you know, uh, the Gardner Museum, which is a, it's the, the biggest and most important ceramics museum in Canada, certainly. And I consider myself, um, a cultured person, someone who appreciates the arts, but in no way am I an artist or like, (laughs) I don't do ceramics in my spare Mm -hmm. time or anything like that. Um, But, you know, I was compelled by the Gardner Museum because they came to me and they wanted, this is predating uh, the civil unrest we see right now and both sides of the border. They knew that they needed better inclusion on their board. They knew that they needed to uh, harvest a new donor, uh, sort of investor donor class mm-hmm. amongst the tech ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. traditionally people who donate to museums, it's not the, the connection with tech is, is not quite there, but they know that that is an active area that they should be exploring. All museums, all nonprofits should be exploring. Uh, so they were ahead of their time. And, you know, I, I thought, well, one of my important uh, philosophies for being on a board is I want to be able to contribute, but I also want to be able to learn. I think mm-hmm. it's very important to yep. always be continuously learning. It's been a theme throughout my career. And so I thought, well, I like art and, you know, I can appreciate it. I think it's an important repository for culture. And uh, so, yeah, I joined that board mainly because I wanted to learn about uh, the art sector and it's a very different, you know, this board is huge. And it's driven mainly by uh, patrons of the museum. Mm-hmm. It's very different than the other nonprofit boards. Uh, the decisions that boards are, that the board is involved with are on like curatorial decisions. Are we going to take this into our museum or not? It's very different than. Like, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so the nonprofit board is very experience is very diverse, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. and you, it's motivated by passion. And there's a lot of work if you're going to do it right. Then when you're sitting on the boards of the startups, because I'm kind of a de facto board member for all the startups in my incubator, which is actually what led me to want to pursue the ICD. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, they're setting up their companies. Many of them are not thinking about governance. Many of them are not thinking about board chairs 
or they're doing the opposite. They're just finding everyone they can and putting them on the board. And then you've got this crazy cap table because everyone has like, and so doing, you know, setting up your company and setting up, thinking about governance very early on and strategically and who should be on a clinical advisory Mm -hmm. versus who should be on your board. Mm -hmm. Those are very important decisions that you should be thinking about, like from the time you have an idea, I think. And so, you know, with those kinds of startup boards, it's, it's very different. Like you are rolling up your sleeves and you're doing a little bit of everything. Like I'm being asked to weigh in on clinical things. I'm being asked to weigh in on strategic, like, should we go to market in this ge- geography or X geography? Like, can you connect us? It's, you're leveraging social capital, uh, clinical acumen, business acumen. Sometimes you're just there as like a coach and a mentor and a, a cheerleader for the CEO and the company. Like it's kind of a mixed bag of everything. And I think that's good. Like it's very fluid. And then when you look at the air, when you progress to like the public boards, especially in med tech, biotech, very different. You mm-hmm. know, there is a very clear role for the board and for the directors oftentimes you are being brought in for a specific skill set or a specific knowledge base. And um, especially in these public companies, you know, there's this whole, the the Wall Street piece and understanding, you know, that it's not just about growing the company and like getting great clinical results is super important. Uh, But you also have to think about the analyst's perspective and Mm. like the stock price. And Mm. if you do this, what is it going to do to the share price? And Mm. so there's a lot of uh, important parts that you would never see in any other kind of company. That was a first for me as well. It's it's a really interesting insight because it goes into deep questions of short term versus long term, and we can go really uh, uh, into that. But first, you, you mentioned ICD, so why okay. don't you explain to people? I mean, a lot of our listeners are actually US based, and as you know, I know David Beatty fairly well. We had him in the show, so we've kind of explained. But but as a director of public boards or director at large, uh, why don't you tell us the process of the ICD and the certification? and and how do people think about that? Sure. Uh, So uh, ICD stands for the Institute of Corporate Directors, and it is housed under the University of Toronto Rotman Business School. And essentially, it's a formalized educational program for professionals to learn the best practices in corporate governance and get certified in corporate governance to become an independent corporate director. And essentially, you know, there's an admission process, there's an application. um, Once you gain, you you have to have references and so on. Once you gain acceptance into the program, it's uh, structured for the working professional. So it's over the course of usually four weekends Mm -hmm. um, in a year. And those four weekends are intense. You need, at least I felt I needed at least two weeks prior to each weekend session to prepare, to read the cases, to like do the research, to, you know, put my thoughts together so that when you arrive uh, for your Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you can fully take advantage of the learning you're going to have in the classroom as well as people around you. Because the other students of the ICD come from all different kinds of backgrounds. They're all extremely, you know, successful in their careers. They're like CEOs, managing directors of you know, from every industry. So you really want to be prepared. And there's actually not that many physicians who who take ICD. Right. If they do take ICD, they usually end up in hospital management. Like I, there's very few that sort of are outside of 
you know, being the VP or CEO of a hospital. Is there a uh, network or any network of surgeons that serve on boards? Not, not really. that I've heard of. No, right. and I, I was thinking about it. It's like a, it's a good idea because mm -hmm. especially for healthcare in general, for med tech, biotech, digital, you know, I think I mentioned balance. You need balance on these boards and that means clinical as well as business. But no, there's, we're starting to see uh, networks of angel investors, which may or may not have implications for board directorship for these angels, but nothing formalized around physicians on boards, at least in Canada. And I haven't seen anything in the U.S., um, so yeah, the Institute of Corporate Directors and, and uh, David Beatty is a very well-known uh, board director, a great friend to both of us and a mentor to many. That's how I met David and uh, was just so intrigued by his, you know, his experiences on boards and just his personality in general is just so, uh, so neat that uh, the experience for me was transformational. To be honest, and I'm not saying this like to plug. I, I have no, I have no, you know, conflict of interest or financial interest in ICD, but it really was transformational to learn best practices. It's not something you can make up or you can just like do on the fly. You know, I'm just going to learn how to be a director, kind of on the fly for like serious companies. I think you actually need that grounding um, to to, and it covers like the various aspects of governance, including things like ESG, cyber. Everything that's cutting edge is is in that course. So why don't you tell us, you know, how did you get into the first public board and, and what was that process like? Yeah. Uh, so the the first public board that I joined is an excellent company pro called Profound Medical. Uh, and basically it's an imaging company focused on prostate cancer and prostate hypertrophy using ultrasound and MRI technology instead of surgery. And I was actually on a panel discussion with the CEO. Uh, there was like a four-person panel. We were talking about innovation. Uh, and uh, that's how I encountered the CEO, Arun Menawat, who's an excellent CEO. And we, we you know, got to chatting a little bit. And then he connected with me after the conference to tell me a bit more about Profound. And then, you know, I met some of the other board directors who um, largely came from the investor class of that company, the The, a lot of the directors were on the investor side. So I met several of the other board directors and, and that's sort of how the process started. It was mainly because I was on a panel with the CEO and uh, the CEO thought I could be a good addition to the board. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious now, so is this product used in all over the world? Is it in Canada and the United States? How, how broad is it used? Well, that's interesting. So uh, the product, uh, so the company has uh, multiple products and the main one uh, around prostate cancer is um, it's gone through several rounds of trials. It's now being used mainly in the US and uh, to a certain extent in Europe. And one of our other products is being used in Asia. Uh, but part of the, the plan and the strategy is to really internationalize the technology. And, and it came out of Sunnybrook Hospital, which is here in Toronto, uh, based on really excellent research. And it's gone through the tech transfer stage and the fundraising. And, you know, we just got FDA approval right. at the end of last year, which has been a very important landmark for the uh, for the company. Now we're working on, you know, reimbursement codes and so on. Uh, but the idea is to so it's being in use. It's, it's in the process of being commercialized. 
there is revenue in the company, for example, but the idea is to now really explode that out because hmm. it's great tech. And I noticed that now you did a cross-listing and it, yeah. it, it was in Toronto Stock Exchange, but now they did a NASDAQ uh, cross-listing. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, in the United States, there are, the last time I counted, many companies, you know, a thousand companies that are cross-listed, foreign companies listed in the US stock market. But And the number one country uh, was Canada in terms mm-hmm. of a uh, number of companies cross-listed. Yeah. But maybe tell us about that process and how, yeah. how, does, how does it work? So, so, you know, I, I, full disclosure, it was a learning process for me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sure. this is my first public company and, and the first time I had uh, gone through a cross listing process. So I learned a lot in the process. And, um, so Canada has excellent science and we have, uh, excellent hospitals, research institutions this is why you get this kind of technology coming out of a company. We punch above our weight in terms of like tech development, basic science research, there is uh, some capital in the in the Canadian venture capital system for biotech medtech. Uh, it's improving, but for the longest time, it has been difficult to access capital. And um, so, part of the reason uh, for listing on TSX is obviously, you know, we want to be listed in our in our home mm-hmm. country. But the idea around the cross listing, you know, now that we have so much validation around the technology. You know that it works, that it does. It's FDA approved. There needs to be more liquidity in the company. We we actually want to make the demand for we want to meet the demand for shares that we're seeing across the world. So putting it on a larger stock exchange uh, gives you just better access to capital. You know, it does help the standing, the profile of the company being listed on a large stock exchange. So I think that was part of the rationale for for doing it and just to have broader reach uh, for the technology. And, you know, I, I think in terms of the learnings, I, like I won't get into all the, the financial details, but it um, there's a lot around mm-hmm. doing that. And this is why the importance of a really strong CFO can't be under, you know, you can't emphasize that enough, having a strong chief financial officer to help manage that in a company, super important. Yeah. So m- moving into kind of the U.S. or our, I suppose global governance questions, as, as you know, and, uh, you know, ESG is playing a massive role. And now there's a big surge, certainly on the E and the S. So when I talk about ESG, it's environmental social governance. And uh, one of the things that is happening post-COVID is the social unrest, right? And And the reality that inequality is bigger than ever and probably nobody sees an end to that or a lot of discussion is around that question and and certainly around diversity right there's been a lot of racial unrest in the united states it's it's a big uh, theme and so how do you perceive diversity maybe in canada maybe in the biotech sector and then in governance because maybe there is something to learn or not from Canada and the U.S. And, and maybe you have a perspective that can inform our listeners. Mm, yeah. I mean, it certainly is, uh, people are talking about it more, but it's a problem. The lack of inclusion, really, it's about mm-hmm. inclusion and equity mm-hmm. more so than, you know, just diversity. It's, it's, um, it's a problem on boards. It's a problem in the C-suite. It's a problem in healthcare, in mining, in every industry. So I'll just talk about healthcare because uh, that's the industry I know the best. So first of all, the the importance of 
inclusion in healthcare starts at like the patient level. You know, if you don't have proper data collection along social and economic and racial and ethnic lines, you cannot create good technology that then lives in great companies that's going to be effective for everyone. And some people will like extrapolate and call it personalized medicine. It doesn't even have to be that complicated. You need to have a full picture of the patient population that your, you know, your technology solution uh, is geared towards and that is missing. So like the in the lack mm-hmm. of inclusion begins at the very basic level in Canada and in the US. And then if you go up the next level to physicians who often are the key decision makers in in the healthcare, there is a there is a in Canada actually both sides of the border there has been a disgraceful uh, lack of inclusion, particularly in the, uh, the the surgical subspecialties like mine, ENT, and any of the the you know the fields where uh, that have been traditionally uh, closed off. Uh, and so, when I say inclusion, it's it's along gender lines, of course. But I, I specifically talk about Black and Indigenous because uh, that is a different category. And if you're a Black or Indigenous woman, like you have like you're below you're below everyone so i am specifically talking about that and you know you'll be interested to know that up until 2019 black medical students were banned from queen's medical school in canada and and so this was a rule that dated back to like 1918 and it was only officially struck down in 2019 that's incredible. So, you know, black students were able to like wiggle their way in, but it was a it was a, a rule until 2019. That's last year. So if you're, you know, if we're wondering, well, why are these different, you know, these disparities happening in medicine? Well, we're not collecting data on patients. There's not enough black doctors to, and there's plenty of studies that show when you have, you know, a doctor patient alliance that you know, is optimized. There's good communication. A lot of that is cultural and and ethnic and racial, whether people like to admit it or not, you get better outcomes. So there's lack of inclusion at that level. Then if you look at senior management in hospitals, I mean, take a look at any hospital. U.S. is obviously ahead of us in terms of that. But if you look at any U.S. hospital, any Canadian hospital, I I don't think there's a single Black or Indigenous Mm -hmm. uh, CEO. Uh, or board chair for that matter. So long way to go. Then if you start looking at industry, again, the US with the Mercs of the world is, you know, um, is a ways ahead of us, but there is still a lack of inclusion for women, for black people, and for black women, especially in senior management of these companies. There's always a couple of exceptions, and certainly on the boards of these companies. And I think, so whenever, when I think about a board, and, you know, I went through it with Profound and with every other board I'm on, I always ask during the process, the recruitment process, why do you want me on your board? Mm -hmm. I think the worst reason to be on a board is, well, we're doing a real push for inclusion, or we're doing a real push because, you know, like that is the worst reason. It yeah. needs to be that you genuinely want the skill set that that person brings to the table. You're generally in, you genuinely are interested in um, you know impacting outcomes in healthcare because you're going to be able to reach a broader audience. You're going to be able to understand nuances of different patient populations and so on. So I always ask because I don't want to be a box and a box to be sure. checked off. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that you know, a lot of boards mean well, and they want to, you know, make their boards look a certain way. Right. 
but the look is less important than what the board director actually is able to contribute. And I would argue that any board, like most board directors can contribute something. They may not look like you would traditionally expect them to look, but you have to fundamentally care about why you want that person on the board. And it can't just because of be because of how they look. So, yeah, I think things are starting to change. I think that we're seeing a whole wave of opportunities on boards. And, you know, part of it is because like the Goldman Sachs of the world says we're not doing another IPO if you right, don't have right. proper representation. And I, I think that's the right thing to do because it's hard to get behavior change without, you know, sometimes a little bit of a stick. Right. Uh, you'd like to do it with a carrot, but sometimes you need the stick. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give an example, right? In, in Silicon Valley, we've struggled for, for a long time on the board level uh, in the sense that uh, a lot of the directors of startups, venture-backed startups, are either the VCs or the founders. And there are not many independent directors in a structural level. Exactly. And and you're absolutely right about Silicon Valley. And and, and that's and it's not just Silicon, it's tech in general. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a little diff it's a little more difficult to get action in the tech sector because many of the companies are not listed and there's not the Goldman Sachs right. stick exactly. or you know, uh regulatory sticks poking at companies to do things. And honestly, if you leave it to people's goodwill, it doesn't happen. Exactly. So um, this is why there was such a push in the venture capital community to get better representation, uh, particularly amongst Black people. Like in the U.S., you know, Black spending is $1.4 trillion, not just in healthcare, but in general. That is a huge opportunity that people seem to be blind, have been blind to up until now. And so tech in general is starting to understand, oh, if we have Black businesses and Black VCs, we can tap into that Black spending, Mm -hmm. which is not insignificant. And I think I'm hoping that healthcare and and biotech and medtech starts to catch up and understand that there are, you know, clinical and business opportunities by really doing that personalized medicine by creating technology that responds to specific diseases and specific demographic groups, or and that optimizes care for specific people in specific situations. Um, rather than only catering to like the the mass the masses, and but to do that to create those opportunities and those specialized um, you know businesses, you need the proper representation amongst the founders who are going to understand and more importantly care about those problems, and you need that inclusion amongst the board mm-hmm. because one thing I've noticed is in it's it's more so in the corporate world like it's one thing to like get in as an underrepresented minority or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to stay in. And this is where board directors are so important for that CEO. So suppose you end up having a black CEO or an indigenous CEO or a woman CEO. Great, they're in the position. But then what happens when things go wrong? You need a really strong, inclusive board to help that CEO steer through whatever tough times are going to happen. And so there's actually like this whole uh, thought school of thought around you often see women this is more for gender you see women taking the helm of companies that are in distress that seems to be always the opportunities that they end up getting (laughs) and probably can trickle down to like black and and other types of 
underrepresented people. They only get the opportunities when the company is in distress. Yeah. And there's higher risk if you take on a project like that. If you become the CEO of a distressed company, like it's much harder to do well and to stay in that mm-hmm. position. And so I think there is a special uh, role for the board to uh, recruit obviously the right CEO for the right, you know, for the right time of the company, but also to help them and help them be the best CEO they can, irrespective of what they look like. But just knowing that there is a tendency for (laughs) the worst companies to like place the woman or the companies in the most distress to like pick the black CEO. And that automatically sets them up for something that is not necessarily success. And so we have to be cognizant of that as board directors, I think. No, I think that's a great point. And, and I agree that there's, there's a lot of research around that, right? And, and, and cases where uh, that, that has happened. Okay, so, so now let's move into our rapid fire questions oh. and, and, and get to know you a little bit better. So who are your mentors and, and what did you learn from them? Mm, that's a great question. So I... Um, I have some special feelings about mentorship and I know uh, there, it will be provocative and a lot of people will disagree. Right. I don't, I love that. I love that. <laughs> to begin with, uh, please go ahead. I'm not a huge believer or fan of mentorship, to be honest. Okay. Um, and again, I'm saying this as a black woman mm-hmm. in business. I'm a huge fan of mentorship and sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Those two together. And there's a difference. So mentorship my experience with mentorship has been like people wanting to give you guidance and, and like meet for coffee and like, you know, I'll, I'll give you some, some free advice kind of thing. And that's fine. If you're in the club, if you're in that guidance is amazing. But when you're outside, like women, black people, indigenous, it's just, it's words, it's talk without the actual door opening so you can step through and then make good on the advice that your mentor has been giving you. Mm-hmm. So the, the the sponsorship, the allyship, whatever you want to call it, is the door opening, is the saying of your name when you're not in the room with people who matter or like who make the decisions. Um, you can have all the mentorship in the world, but if people are not talking about you in those closed groups, like, oh, you know, they'd be a good person for this, for this role. The mentorship's not going to get you anywhere. And uh, in fact, I have found in some rare instances, perverse incentives around mentorship, because when you get highly accomplished, underrepresented people, it's almost like they become a bit of a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And there was a certain amount of like, credibility, social capital that people can trade on by, by knowing this, you know, unicorn type person, like, oh, yes, you know, this person's graduated from all these great schools and is really accomplished. There's not that many. So it becomes this, um, like a, a badge of honor that you have this person as your mentee, but you're not opening the door for them. So I have my, my reservations about mentorship. I think mentorship is really great at the very beginning of your career, like when you're in university or pre-collegiate and you, you don't, don't know what to do with your life and you want to hear lots of different ideas. That's amazing. Uh, mentorship is extremely valuable when you are in the door, like those CEO, the women CEOs and the black CEOs that get put in front of like the distressed company, then you really do need some mentorship. You're already in the position. Now you need the guidance. But that big space in between you need for black and indigenous and and women, you need mentorship plus sponsorship to get in the door. 
And then the mentorship becomes amazing, but without sponsorship, it's kind of useless. Having said that, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really have a lot of mentors. I've modeled myself, let's say, uh, after uh, my parents. My parents uh, were extremely hardworking. They, uh, my mother especially, was extraordinarily humble. Probably one of the smartest pers- people I would have ever met, will ever meet. Uh, but incredibly humble, very grounded. Uh, would never think that she was better than anyone else. Just a salt of the earth person. But like, she raised five daughters, and we all went to Harvard. We're all doctors and lawyers, and you know, I think pretty decent people, which is the actual test is if you're a good good. person. She did good. (laughs) Yeah, she did well. She did. Uh, So I've modeled myself after my parents and I've taken little bits of different people I've met over the years to create my like virtual mentor kind of thing, like just properties and traits that I have appreciated in others. Uh, I've learned a lot about what I don't want to be and like how I don't want to behave from people. And that in a way helps with your modeling of yourself Uh, I've had champions, though. I've had two or three champions, people who have opened doors and done transformational things in my life. And they'll remain nameless, but uh, those people have changed the entire arc of my career, of my professional uh, being, of my personal, uh, you know, well-being. And, And to me, they've always provided mentorship as well. They will, you know, I can bend their ear whenever I want. They'll give me their opinion, but more importantly, they sponsor and open doors. And, and to me, that is the, the transformational equation. Maybe, maybe I should change a question to who, who are your champions? <laughs> um, okay. Just, you know, cause it, especially now, like everyone wants to be your mentor, especially sure. if you're a black person, like, let me mentor you, let me mentor you. Right. Well, okay. Yeah. You can mentor me, but are you going to open some doors right. to Right. Right. Like. No, no, no uh, I, I hear you. I mean, it's it's a great point, and I, and I love that you made it. And are there any quotes that you think of often, or do you live your life by? Especially now with like technology and like Instagram and all this, you always see like these, you know, adages and all these like words to live by and so on. I think one that really means a lot to me uh, is the following. So it's actually by Maya Angelou, and I, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't. Uh, it's, it's just, it really fits me. And it is that you will face many defeats in life, but never let yourself be defeated. And um, like, I live and breathe that every day. There have been so many times where I've been told no, or have not been seen, which is even worse than being told no, you're not seen. People automatically discount you. You could never be this because you don't look this way or you don't sound like this. Uh, and that it includes business. It includes medicine. Uh, it's actually worse than medicine, I think. Uh, so there have been many uh, challenging things in life, professionally, personally, and it's it's really all about thinking that goes along with it and, and not allowing yourself to be defeated. Those are learning opportunities. However you want to slice it, but that stays with me. It's okay. all about how you respond to something and how you see something that there's that. And then there's one other thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing, it's not a quote. It's just more the idea of like, stay in your lane. It is so easy to compare yourself to everyone else in every respect. And if you just stay in your lane and stay focused on what you want to do and who you are and what you believe in and what contribution you want to make to society, everything else will follow and it will be easy. I've learned that. Like I live that now because things come so much easier when I just focus on what I'm doing and not what the person on the left and the right 
are doing or what people are telling me I should do. If I just stay true to myself, everything becomes easy. No, I I, I think I I agree 100%. Uh, So is there any unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I was thinking about this, to be honest. And I was like, I don't have anything unusual. I don't do any, I don't have any weird habits or anything like that. But then I was like, there is one thing that I do and that, you know, I told my, my, my sisters and they're like, what? what? And so I, um, I'm a physician. I care very much about health. And so I, I, I do this, but there's a lot of thinking behind it, but I eat the same thing for breakfast every day. I eat the same thing for lunch every day. Wow. I eat the same thing for dinner every day. I would say that's unusual. <laughs> Now, keep in mind, it's 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 basically all macrobiotic, uh-huh, and it's uh-huh. very balanced. There's, and you know, I take vitamins and minerals as well. Uh, but irrespective of that, the the intake, the actual food products that I eat are 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 pretty macrobiotic, and you know, there's not a lot of preserved anything. There's, you know, when I go shopping the grocery store, it's always at the periphery of the store, not in the center of the store. So you get fruits, vegetables, that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I basically am vegetarian, but I just find that that routine or ritual, as it were, you know, some people like in the valley, especially like the the, the, the black turtleneck or the hoodie. And right, you have right. To, it helps you make more efficient your decision making. You just wear the same thing every day. Well, I like clothes and shoes, so I'm not going to be wearing a black turtleneck uh-huh. every day. <laughs> But I find I can save time and mental processing power on knowing exactly what I'm going to be eating. I don't I have to it. spend a whole lot of time like, oh, I wonder what this recipe is going to taste like. Like I don't cook and I don't want to cook and <laughs> I don't care about it. Uh, so I do get for when I go out to eat or I go to an event, it's a huge, you know, special thing. It's like a different meal and I enjoy it. And then when it's not that special time, I have my routine and I make sure that it covers like vitamin and mineral requirements, right, obviously. Right, right. And it's coupled with a very vigorous workout routine every day. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. And I guess that's maybe a little unusual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I've obviously known like the Silicon Valley. Yeah. You always wear the same clothes and it's yeah. time. But it's the same idea. It's just like you pick the different item. Yeah. Uh, I, and, find, and- I find it very stressful, like trying to figure out like as, sure. as a single person, especially like this. Sure. So I think a great idea for innovation is, is, you know, everything you buy in the grocery store is like, it's kind of, if you're a single person is bulk, it's mm-hmm. like too much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I just decided to cut out that mm-hmm. decision-making. I don't mm-hmm. have to deal with it anymore. Yeah. No, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay. So the last question is, which living person do you most admire? Mm. Well, up until six months ago, I actually would have said my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And she, uh, for so many reasons, just, you know, it's always funny, you know, I think you see your parents differently, uh, you know, as a kid versus as an adult versus once they've passed away and, um, her ability to see a person like within a second, she could, she knew who that person was. She could even see a photo of a person and understand exactly who that person was was like truly in their core. Mm. Yeah. She had this incredible barometer for humanity and for, for people and understanding people. She was never wrong. You know, she was very, I think I get my sort of bluntness from her. Like, you know, we, we don't dress things up how we, how we say things, but she was never, ever wrong. And, And so she, and she had a very difficult childhood, you know, one of 13 kids and a two 
room house in northern New Brunswick. Uh, you know, my grandfather's a longshoreman kind of thing and died an alcoholic. So he had a very, very tough life and uh, was maybe the most generous person you ever meet. So smart. So street smart, people smart. Uh, so I would and never needed anything. Never needed it. Never expected her kids to go to Harvard. Never needed a million dollars. You know, she would give you the shirt off her back if 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 you asked for it, kind of thing. The one thing she would never accept though was anyone uh, not treating her daughters well, or anyone not seeing her daughters or underestimating her daughters. So she was at that school every day for all of us because there was a lot of mm. there are often issues with people not seeing us as right. contenders for whatever it was. So she fought every battle for us, every battle, and unbelievable. So I would say her. Um, she was recently passed away. So I'd say my my living, the person who's living now, who is probably uh, someone I, I admire and aspire to be, is you know, I, probably for most people, it's someone like Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yes, he's a politician, and there's a lot of stuff that goes around being a politician that isn't uh, quite my cup of tea. But I think at his core, he's a person who genuinely cares about people about humanity about everyone not just black people everyone he um i think had in some ways a life that is parallel a little mm-hmm. bit to, to mine yeah. like interracial yeah. parents a, a father who was like very traditional african mm-hmm. not communicative very much but fiercely proud and strong and you know, a mother who was very kind of down to earth. And so like, there's a lot of things there that I, I identify with and, um, the Harvard connection too. the Harvard connection. Yeah. And so for him to have done the things that he's done and, and still, I think, I don't know him personally, but for him to remain like a decent, good person, which I fundamentally believe he is, is, is to me like a, the real testament to his. Just like good. our current president. <laughs> Well, again, I don't want to get into politics. No, 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 we're not going to get it. I just, um, so yeah, Barack Obama is is one for the ages in my book. Okay. Yeah. Well, Linda, this has been brilliant. I I love talking to you (laughs) and and we've gone through many things, not only governance, but uh, it's been great. So thank you very much. And I look forward to to meeting you in person once this coronavirus (laughs) is over. If we can ever travel again, I would love to meet you in person. And and really, I I thank you very much for the opportunity. This is my first podcast, so hopefully it is listenable for people. And I know you'll do a wonderful job, hopefully, of editing. Uh, But I really appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of capable people out there from all walks of life uh, who have a lot to add to to the world and to boards. and. you know, hopefully seeing people or hearing people like me and 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 others will encourage greater inclusion because you get better business and you get a better world to live in with those kinds of principles at heart. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you very awesome. much, Linda. And we'll Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to this Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. You can also subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.